All right, open up your Bibles. Psalms chapter 82. Hopefully, you guys were doing this in Bible study this week, but we're going to talk a little about it today. All right, Psalms chapter 82. And I have made reference to this concept and to this chapter a couple times in a number of my sermons, um, really throughout the last couple of years, but we've never actually done kind of a formal message on it. And so I wanted to go ahead and do that today. This is kind of an introduction to this idea of a divine counsel, of a divine counsel. And we are doing this in our Bible studies this semester. We're studying these individual passages to see this. But what I want to do today is kind of give you a basic understanding of this idea, because most Christians don't have one. Most Christians do not understand what this whole thing is about because they were never taught about it growing up, and there's good reason for that, because this idea has really only become somewhat popular in theological fields really in the past 10 years, okay? In the past 10 years, this idea of divine counsel has really started to gain steam theologically. There were people that were writing about it before that time, but there wasn't really any momentum on it. So if you've seen any of the newer Bible Project videos, by the way, you guys need to watch those Bible Project videos on YouTube? Those are good videos. I really like. Um, I really like them. I think he does. Generally speaking, he does a great job doing um, biblical theology. Um, the newer, some of the newer videos have started to get into this idea of divine counsel. He's, um, Michael Heiser, who's maybe one of the the strongest proponents of these theories um, these days, he's been um, brought on as a theological advisor for the Bible Project, which is why they're starting to incorporate a number of these things. So if you watch some of their videos on spiritual beings, um, I think they have a specific one on the divine counsel. You're going to get more of this. But I wanted today to dig into Psalm 82 because Psalm 82, I think, is probably the clearest picture that we see of this subject. And like I said, it's not a very well-known subject. So what I want to say right off the bat, if you're like, dude, this is weird. I've never heard this. Am I in a cult? Okay. I want to say, no, you're not in a cult. Okay. Do not worry. All of this is under the umbrella of orthodox theology. We'll explain how, but they are not well-publicized ideas, okay? Now, I went ahead and um, got a commentary from a guy who some of you may have heard of named John Piper, okay? And I'm actually going to quote John Piper's commentary on Psalm 82 because he agrees with this, okay? God bless him. Now, he is not really that familiar with a lot of these ideas, but at least for Psalm 82, he sees it pretty strong, which is a good thing. Okay, so it says this, Psalm 82 Hopefully you found it. It says this, verse 1, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. Okay, pause, all right? This word, gods, in Hebrew is Elohim, Elohim, okay? This is um, probably the most popular term for God in the Old Testament, okay? Elohim. And if you know anything about Hebrew, the way you say plural things is with the I-M ending, Okay? Elohim is speaking of gods. It's a plural, it's a plural word, but can, can sometimes be used singularly to refer to Yahweh. All right? But this has caused translators a lot of confusion a lot of times because they don't know exactly how to translate this word. And part of this is because they don't have this paradigm of divine counsel often. All right, what I want to say is this: the scene that we're seeing here in Psalm 82 is a scene in the heavenly realm. Okay? This is taking place in the heavenly realm, and what's happening, God is speaking to these other divine beings. Now, we can think of them as angels. I think that's the way that we in the evangelical tradition generally think of these things, right? We think of them as angels and demons. This is like the, the host of heaven, but we think usually of the ones being in heaven, these are the angels, and that's okay if you want to think of it like that, 
But what I want to do is offer a little tweak to your paradigm because it's not the most biblical way of thinking about it. Okay, And I know that's kind of weird for us, but it's this idea that there are many spiritual beings. Okay, There's many spiritual beings. The idea angel, angel actually you know, is a translation from a Greek word that just means messenger. Okay, Angel in the New Testament really just means messenger. And so you're going to find examples in the New Testament of that word angel that is really talking about people sometimes. Like, for example, in Revelation, in the early chapters of Revelation, it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? And really what that's probably referring to, it's probably referring to the human messenger, okay? So that's why angel is not a very precise term a lot of times, okay? It's better to think of this, that there is a vast realm of spiritual beings in the heavenly realm, okay? Now, I got to pause here because already some people are like, okay, we're getting weird, all right? Newsflash, this whole thing is weird, okay? The whole Bible is weird, all right? What's the point? It's a different worldview, all right? And some of us, sometimes we want the Bible to be void of anything that's supernatural, anything that's spiritual. We want it to make logical, humanistic sense, and I got to tell you right up front, it doesn't, all right? You try and read the Bible and... Explain off like all the angel demon stuff is just, oh, that's just what they believe superstitiously and those things don't really exist. I got to say, man, it's going to be hard for you to understand the Bible, okay? Because the Bible assumes that these things are real and that they're true and that they exist. And in fact, it's going to tell us again and again that our lives are caught up with what they're doing. By they, I mean these spiritual beings. In fact, Paul's going to talk about how we are in a spiritual war right now. Who's our war against? These powers, these principalities, these spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Now, if you don't believe in them, how the heck are you going to fight effectively against them? Answer, you're not going to. And that's the problem here. Much of the church is so ignorant about the spiritual realm. And they don't know how to engage properly in spiritual warfare. They don't even know what that's really about. They just think that means praying. Just let's spiritually war. I'm going to pray. I don't know what else to do, right? And, but there's so much more to that. I want us to understand all of this stuff. Does that make sense? So let's come to the scripture and say, God, I want to understand things from your perspective. And God is giving it to us right here in Psalm 82. He's in a divine assembly, in a general assembly amongst the other powers. And specifically, this is the rulers in the heavenly realm. Okay, now scripture talks about this, that there's different kinds of spiritual beings. Some are what we would think of as like lowly spiritual beings. That's actually where the idea of angels comes. They're the messengers, right? The messengers. But it also speaks of rulers in this heavenly realm, okay? And this is who is being addressed here, all right? And the term that it's being used to describe these beings is Elohim, is gods, okay? Is gods. So God, Yahweh, is rendering judgment or is at a meeting of his divine counsel, and he's speaking to them, all right? And he's speaking to them. Now, I'm going to give John Piper's commentary here, all right? He says this, quote, Psalm 82 is an amazing expose of the gods, what the New Testament calls, quote, principalities and powers and world rulers of this present darkness. God comes to the assembly of the gods and rebukes them for the pattern of evil in the world. So verse 1, he says, God takes his stand in the assembly of God. He judges in the midst of the gods. This is what he says 
Remember, he is talking to the gods, not to mere humans. Okay, this is what John Piper is saying. Okay, let's go to verse 2. What's, his, what's he saying to them? Quote, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All of the foundations of the earth are shaken. Okay. Here's John Piper's commentary. Quote, verse 5 refers to the victims of the darkness caused by the world rulers of this present darkness. They are the people whom Hosea says are, quote, destroyed for lack of knowledge. Paul says that the, quote, God of this world darkens the mind of unbelievers. God is calling to account the powers of darkness for this destructive darkening. It even shakes the foundations of the earth because the foundations are light and truth. If darkness prevails, the foundations are shaken. Pretty good, John Piper. Not bad. I think he's right, okay? Now, I got to say that because I disagree with John Piper on a lot of stuff, okay? But right here, I think he is right on. That's exactly what this is talking about. God is taking the rulers, the principalities to task because they are being rebellious in their stewardship, meaning God has given them this authority. God has given these spiritual powers this authority to rule over the nations, but what's happening is they're not ruling well. They're ruling poorly. How are they ruling poorly? Because they're not giving justice to the oppressed. Okay? They're not caring for the needy and the weak. Right? Now, this is funny because I think most people, when you read Psalm 82, I've actually heard Psalm 82 quoted to me many times about how you know we need to take care of the poor, and that's absolutely true. But really, the context of this is this idea that these spiritual rulers are not caring for the poor, right? And because of that, God is judging them. And what happens is because they know nothing, because they're walking around in darkness, what happens? The foundations of the earth are shaken. This is speaking of calamity and trouble on the earth. So the idea is that there's calamity and trouble and strife and war. These things are happening because these spiritual rulers are not doing a good job ruling their respective nations or territories. Is this making sense so far? Okay, this is the idea. Okay, God gave authority to these beings, these spiritual beings. Now, the Old Testament is going to refer to them as, quote, the sons of God. Okay, the sons of God. All right, we're going to see a number of different passages. We'll be studying them in our Bible studies this semester of these references to this group of being known as the sons of God. So, for example, one of the really weird passages is in Genesis um, 6 or 5, around there, where it talks about how some of the sons of God came down to earth and slept with human women, right? And they had giants as babies. And that's the part of the Bible that we go, okay, I'm just going to skip over that part. All right, it's kind of weird, except the New Testament quotes this several times, right? In Jude, and I believe in 1 Peter, they quote um, 1 Enoch about this whole story about how the sons of God rebelled against God and came down and slept with human and they begat giants. In fact, biblically speaking, this is actually the reason why God brought a great flood upon the earth. Okay? Now, I don't want to get too weird because there's a lot of stuff that we could go down this rabbit trail if we just started talking about Enoch all day. But today, I'm just trying to give us an overview of what this whole thing is about. Okay? Now, I think 
What a lot of people think at this point is, wait a second, there's more than one God? This sounds like heresy, right? This sounds like a certain thing called polytheism, right? Where you believe in multiple gods, all right? And yet, I want to tell you, this is not polytheism. This is biblical Christianity and biblical Judaism, okay? Part of the misunderstanding here is that this is Judaism. The way it puts it is like this. There are other gods, but one God created all of them, okay? That's the difference here, okay? The idea is that Judaism, biblical Judaism, and biblical Christianity will recognize that there are other gods, but that one God created all of them and then gave the other gods their authority. Is this making sense? And you're like, what are you talking about, Pastor Dennis? Well, let's look at some scripture, shall we? All right, Exodus 15, 11 says this. Who is like you among the gods, Yahweh, right? This is the idea that there are, the, the assumption is that there are the gods, but that Yahweh is different from all the other gods. He's not like them. This is the consistent testimony of the Old Testament. It's saying Yahweh is a different class of being from all these other gods. In Psalm 9, or excuse me, in Deuteronomy 3, it says this, what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do according to your works and according to your mighty deeds? 1 Kings 8 says, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in the heavens above or on the earth beneath. Psalm 95 says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Again, the idea is that there are other gods, but Yahweh is the God of gods, right? He's the one above them all. Psalm 29 says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. This is the idea that you see several times in Scripture where actually the biblical writers are telling the other gods, worship Yahweh, right? They're telling, they're commanding the other gods, give glory to Yahweh. Now, we might think to ourselves, what the heck? How does this even make sense, all right? And I want to say that part of this is because we have this idea, and kind of the paradigm that dominates Christianity is this, that there is a sinful nature in humanity, and we are fighting against our sinful nature, but it's not like that with the other beings, right? It's not like that with the angels. They don't have a sinful nature that they're fighting against. Well, can I tell you, all the biblical evidence is yes, they do, essentially, Okay? They actually do struggle against their sinful desires and temptations. In fact, we see that multiple times in the scriptures, right? Going back to that Nephilim episode in Genesis 6, where the sons of God rebel against Yahweh, and they're judged for that. Scripture says they're bound in chains of darkness, awaiting judgment. Okay? There are other episodes. We have this idea of Satan, right, who rebelled against God. This is the idea that they're also, they, have, they can have sinful temptations and desires that they are struggling against themselves. In fact, Scripture says again that we, in some way, are going to judge angels. Why would we need to judge angels? Because they're struggling with their own stuff too. Ooh, kind of weird to think about, right? But this is the truth. And in fact, what Scripture is going to tell us again and again is that the struggle that we're in in the nations right now is actually just one facet 
of this larger struggle that's happening in the heavenly realm. Meaning, there's war in the heavenly realm. That's why there's war on the earth. The two are interconnected. Is this making sense? I'm saying a lot of people will be like, what is happening? All right. Psalm 89 says this. Heavens, praise your wonders, Lord. Your faithfulness, too, in the assembly of the holy ones. Let's pause. Let's pause. So this is another scene. This is the heavens are praising his wonders. What does that speak of? That's speaking of the heavenly host, right? The beings in the heavenly realm, they're praising Yahweh, right, for all that he has done. And it says this in verse 6, For who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. We're getting a picture of this, right? The glimpses that we're seeing here are that there is this council of holy ones, right? And they worship the Lord too, but they are also tempted to do evil. They're also tempted to do evil, all right? Now, this idea has actually caught on a lot of steam in secular academia. So if any of you guys have taken religion classes, classes about Christianity or the origins of Judaism or the origins of the Bible, there is a theory that's very popular in academia, and it's like this, that there is this people, these Hebrews, and they were one of many Canaanite tribes, and essentially these Canaanite tribes were all polytheists. So the idea is that these Hebrews were originally polytheist, but they evolved, their religion evolved, and they started to believe that their God became the great God above the rest, okay? And where are they getting this evidence? Well, they're getting it from all of these passages that we're talking about, right? All these passages that we talk about don't have good explanation in the traditional Christian paradigm. The idea that there's just one God and that is that there's many gods, these spiritual rulers, but there's one God who created them. This fundamental misunderstanding is why, one of the main reasons why secular you know, theory on religion is not being adequately combated. Because Christian theologians don't know how to deal with some of these texts and some of these passages because they don't have a paradigm of the divine counsel. Is this making sense? A little bit. Okay. This is the idea. My best speculative guess, okay, because we are getting into a little bit of speculation here. My guess is that some of these divine princes who were given authority by the Lord they rebelled against God, and specifically, they rebelled against his chosen king, who is Jesus. Okay? Jesus has given authority over all of heaven and earth. Some of these princes, I think, bowed the knee to Jesus, and some of them rebelled against his rulership, which is why we're in this war that we're in now. This is why Paul says that our battle's not really against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual forces of wickedness, these principalities is what scripture calls them, okay? And among them, we could think Satan is one of these, but really it's talking about multiple of these archangels, these fallen archangels. That's another way that we can think about it. Is this making sense? All right, I'm sure now some of you are asking, okay, Pastor Dennis, this is, this is fun theology, but how is this relevant to my life at all? Okay, number one, you got to understand the Bible, all right? I want to say this, I love the Bible. I think the Bible is fascinating. 
I think the Bible explains better than anything else the origins of life, the origins of this existence, the nature of humanity, why we have these passions and desires that drive us. I think the Bible explains this better than anything else. But here's also the problem. I think the average Christian today has such a weak understanding of Scripture that they cannot contend with all of the arguments that are given to them in our secular universities and even in the high schools in which they grow up. How do I know that this is true? Because so many believers are falling away. I mentioned the other day, I was shocked, right, when Marty Sampson said that, you know, all these people are going to hell and nobody talks about it. I was like, what are you talking about, right? And yet I realize for many Christians, yeah, they never deal with the hard stuff. They don't deal with the hard arguments. They never deal with apologetics. They never deal with some of these passages that are hard to understand. And what happens is you get these new atheists and they study all the passages in the Bible that make God look bad. Right, And they come and they say, look at this. How does this make sense? And the average Christian is like, that's a good point. <laughs> and I want to lovingly say this. We need to love the scriptures. And the only way that we can is if we get the paradigm that we need to understand it. Okay? Let me say this. If you get this paradigm of divine counsel, I will tell you this. There are all many weird passages in the Bible will start to make sense. Let me put it to you another way. What is the nature of this war that we're fighting? How can we fight against these principalities? Why should we fight against principalities? How does it even make sense that somebody is fighting against God? Do you ever stop to think about that for a second? How do you fight against God? Doesn't God just snap his fingers? and then the enemy turns into dust, right? How does it make sense? Why did it take God six days to create the earth? You ever think about that one? Why didn't it take two seconds? Bah. Why would it take six days? And can I tell you that part of the reason why here is because our paradigm of God is really not the biblical paradigm of God? Let me put it to you another way. I think one of the questions that I get asked a lot when we talk about this subject of divine counsel is, why would God need a divine counsel? Why doesn't he just say, I want this to happen? And it happens, right? And I think that for some of us, that is kind of how we think of things. But I have a newsflash for you. That's generally not how he works. That's generally not what he does. Let me put it this way. Why does he need you? What the heck? What, What good are you? Right? If he wants to save the nations, why the heck does he need your help doing it? Can he just do his Jesus magic and, ooh, oh, Jesus, right? And the answer is yes, of course, right? For an all-powerful, you know, super knowing, he knows everything, he's everywhere at once, there's no reason why that being needs you at all. And yet we see again and again this portrayal of a God who is more limited in the way that he actually functions, okay? So I need to be careful here. I'm not saying that God is not omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent, okay? I am saying that even though he is all of those things, what he chooses to do is rule through imperfect beings. Mm. 
And that's why there's so much drama. That's why there's so many problems with his creation. That's why there are wars. That's why there are famines. That's why there are all of these different things because he delegates authority to beings who are not perfect and who mess up and make mistakes and all this kind of stuff. And then what does he do? He promises to judge everyone. Is this making sense? Okay. If we want an explanation for why God allows evil in the world, really the biblical explanation, I think, is because his created beings chose to do evil. And I think that's a pretty well understood Christian answer, but I want to add a segment to it. It's not just that people chose to do evil. It's really that these archangels, these rulers in the heavenly realms, many of them chose to do evil. That, I think, is why the scripture would say this whole creation is really messed up in a lot of ways. And this is the nature of our warfare. Let me put it to you another way. In this past biblical series, we've been talking about eschatology, the end times. What's God's destiny for you and for me? And we talked about how his plan is to take those who have faith and to raise them up and glorify them and make them rulers. Does that sound like something? Mm-hmm. It should. Because he needs to replace some rulers. Does this make sense? This is actually what Paul is talking about in Romans 8. A lot of people study Romans 8, and it's all about the love of God and how we can't ever lose our salvation. Wrong! Lovingly. No! Okay? Romans 8 is about how the creation is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed. This idea that the rulers of the age to come are in training right now. Who are we talking about, brothers and sisters? We're talking about us. Okay? This is the idea of the bride of Christ. The one who marries the lamb and co-rules with him over heaven and earth for eternity. This is the destiny of the church. The problem here is that Christians, we, don't understand the nature of our calling. Because we've taken the entire Bible, all, you know, 10,000 pages of this thing, and we've whittled it down to if you believe this set of facts about Jesus, you go to heaven, and if you don't believe them, you go to hell. And i got to tell you, that type of of dumbing down of the Bible makes it really difficult to understand the dang thing, which is why, in my experience, most Christians don't want to read the dang thing because they believe they already know what it's about, right? I got the, I got the, the thesis here. Believe in Jesus, heaven, don't believe, uh, you just tell, you know, you just put that in different ways every week. And I want to lovingly say this, please, please get a biblical paradigm, okay? Why? Why should you be surprised when you go through trials and tribulations of various sorts? Why should you be surprised? Why should you be like, God, how could you allow this to happen? God, why aren't you providing my wife? God, why aren't you doing all these things that I expect you to do? And I got to say, it's because your paradigm of the whole thing is broken. You're thinking, oh, I get it. I love Jesus. He blesses me and he takes me to heaven. And we've created this Christian narrative where you're the hero of your own little story and God is your little magic fairy that floats around and blesses you all the time. And when he's not blessing you, you're like, where did that fairy go? And then you get mad at the fairy. God, you're supposed to be there for me. And God is like, 
No, you're supposed to be there for me. Why? Because he's the one testing you. You ain't the one testing him. He's the one testing you in this life. Why do you have to go through hardships? Why do you have to struggle through these things? Because he's testing you to see if you're worthy to become a ruler in the next age. Is this making sense? You, my brother, my sister, are in a giant test. It's called history. And the question is, how are you going to do in this test of life? This is the essence of the biblical gospel. The gospel is the idea of how humanity was doomed to death. What does that mean? It means it had no hope of eternal life. But through Christ, what happens? God takes authority back from all of the powers and he offers eternal life to anyone who would give him their loyalty, their believing loyalty. That's what the scripture calls faith. So this is the story that we're living in. We're calling the nations to faith. Why? So that they can have eternal life and so they can be promoted in the age to come. That's why I tend to emphasize things that are a little bit different than a lot of other pastors because I think I have a little bit more biblical of a mentality in all of this stuff. Okay. Now, let me be clear. There are many pastors who understand things about the Bible much better than I do, all right? But the reason why I talk about this type of stuff is I think that this is some of the most neglected parts of the Bible and what it's resulting in, it's resulting in a church that doesn't know why it has to be faithful. And what happens is when you don't know why you have to be faithful, then what happens is your walk with God just turns into a do good, you make him happy, do bad, you make him mad. And I gotta say, a lot of Christians are living that kind of walk with the Lord. They do good, and they're like, God's happy. The problem is, what happens when you do bad? And it's like, God's not happy. Right? And I find that for most Christians, this is, this, is their, this is their daily walk. They're trying to please God, and they're constantly afraid that he's disappointed or upset with them or mad at them and all this kind of stuff, not realizing the nature of this thing. Hey! You are in a spiritual war. God doesn't expect you to be perfect, yet it's not possible. But your faith is being tested. That's what this is all about. And when we pass tests of faith, what happens is we grow in greater authority in his eyes. Is it making sense? This is the nature of this thing. Secondly, I want to say this. What is it that the powers we're judged for. And if you look at this judgment, go back to Psalm 82 at the very end. It says this in verse 6. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. What's it saying here? It's saying the judgment against these princes, these spiritual princes, is that they're going to die just like mere men. Just like the humans that don't put their faith in Christ, what's going to happen? These princes are going to be killed. They're going to die. And this is the idea. Why? Because they failed to steward what God has given them. They rebelled. And brothers and sisters, we have to understand this is a very understandable, it's a very understandable reason why they rebelled. Because it's the same reason that we do. They don't trust God. 
They don't trust him. This is the same thing that humanity is struggling with, this idea of will I trust him? Will I trust him when it doesn't make sense? Will I trust him when he says, no, you can't have that thing that you want? Will I trust him in those times? And look at this. What are they, what are they rebuked for? They're called to be rulers, but they're only thinking about themselves. They're called to be rulers, but what happens? Their hearts become hardened towards others. They lose their heart of compassion, the heart of a servant, and what happens? They become selfish. They give in to the temptation to be selfish and to use others for their own good and benefit. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, this is, the, this is the same struggle that all of us are going through right now. You know how I can tell? Because right now, we are in the midst of the greatest atrocity of all time. Oh, yes, I'm talking about abortion. 42 million babies died last year. Question, what did you do about it? Say this lovingly, what did you do about it? Why? Because the nature of having a compassionate heart is having the ability to stop thinking about yourself, what you want, what your plans are, what your desires are, and having a heart that connects with those who cannot defend themselves, who cannot fight for themselves. My question is this, church, are our hearts connecting with that people that is the most oppressed, most abused, most wronged people in the history of the earth? There's never been a genocide like the one that we're living in every day. The one that's going on right down there in Anaheim where we went out with life tape and signs. It's happening every day. Last year alone, Planned Parenthood killed over 300,000 babies. In one year, these things are everywhere. Why? Because we have a culture now that's become so hardened against the idea that these are actually people. Can I tell you, this is the nature of atrocity. Our hearts become divorced from them. Why? Because they've become so, so much of an inconvenience to ours. And I'm speaking corporately right now. Babies have become an inconvenience in society. Do you know that this happens to every culture that gets rich and affluent? They stop wanting to have babies. Because when they think of a baby, all they're thinking of is all the work and effort and sacrifice that goes into raising one. Because guess what? Man, it is hard. All right? My baby right now is sick. Sick babies are the worst, guys. It's going to make it real, all right? That, that girl woke up at least 20 times last night. Not, not last night, but the night before that. Oh, my gosh. It is real when you're dealing with a sick baby, okay? But the question, is it worth it? Is it worth the difficulty? Is it worth the hardship? Is it worth it? And the answer to that, brothers and sisters, is yes, is yes. You know what I hear? I hear right now in Korea, nobody wants to have babies. They want to have one baby. That's it. Why? Because they treat babies like they're toys, right? Like, how many kids do you want to have? It's like, do you want to have a dog, right? What would make you happy? And we don't think like the way we used to think. 
which is that it is an inherently, innately good thing to have babies. Why? Because babies have innate worth. Newsflash, you were once a baby. Good thing your mom and your dad decided to do the dirty. All right? Even if they weren't planning to have a baby, thank God that they had you. Some of you are all like, wait a second. No, I'm saying thank God. Thank God. Thank God that our parents decided to have us, even if they weren't trying to have us. Right? Even if they weren't trying to have us, thank God. Because that's why we're here. Right? That should be glorious. Thank God that they decided to keep us, even if they didn't want us. Why? Because my whole life would be snuffed out. Am I making sense here? It is an inherently good thing to have babies. Why? Because every baby is an opportunity for a person to live forever, to have eternal life. This is the nature of this thing. If you don't have a baby, there's no opportunity for this soul to have eternal life. But if you have a baby, all of a sudden, there is a potential eternal being here, right? And then it's our job as a church, right, to go after that being and to make it immortal by telling it about the gospel, right? I want to say this, guys. This is important. What's happening? The powers are being rebuked because they're selfish and they're using people because all they think about is themselves. I want to say this is a struggle that's common to humanity. Many of us don't know this story. I want to tell you, I'm going to close with this story, okay? Lou Engel, who I love, he said this, okay? This is in February 2005, 14 years ago. He said this. In February 2005, quote, One of our youth, a 15-year-old girl at the Justice House of Prayer, had a dream. In the dream, she saw a large, beautiful building with the words, the who, appearing over it. In the dream, she and her sisters entered the house and began to look throughout the building until they found the attic where there was a series of old books from the past that they knew would be needed for the future. She shared the dream with the J-Hop team. I knew the dream was from God, but I wondered, what is the who and what are these old books? So pause. I realize I got to summarize sometimes because like when I start reading, people go, huh? All right. One little girl, 15-year-old girl has a dream. In the dream, there's this house and they go up into the attic of the house and they find these old books, right? These old books and the, the house has the word, the who written over it. They don't understand what the dream is about. Pause. If you don't know anything about God, let me tell you this. Dreams are one of the most common ways that God speaks. All throughout the scriptures, all throughout history, dreams are one of the most common ways that God speaks. And when he gives dreams, oftentimes they're a mystery. They're a riddle, okay? This is the nature of how God speaks. Why? Because it forces you to seek out the revelation and the understanding. He doesn't make it so obvious. Going back to Lou, he says this. The next morning, while pondering the dream, I received a remarkable email from a man in Kansas City that included a sermon he gave several years ago on what must occur for abortion to end. He felt led to send it to me, even though he thought it was unusual that the analogy the Lord had given him was based on the Dr. Seuss book, Horton Hears a Who. When I read this, I instantly connected the who in the dream with the who in the book. I was immediately interested. So in this children's book written in 1954, we find an elephant whose name is Horton. He is the prophetic church with big ears and a large trumpet. He can hear what no one else can hear, the sound of these little people called the Who's who live in the microscopic town of Whoville. 
In the book, we also find a kangaroo who wants to kill all the little who's because he cannot see or hear them. He doesn't believe they exist. Immediately, the thought came to me, the kangaroo is the kangaroo court standing for the Supreme Court who issued the death decree of 73 in Roe versus Wade and legalized abortion. Wow! I realized that what I was reading was a parable from the past that was now going to be used in mass for the ending of abortion. The theme of the whole book, amazingly, is a person's a person no matter how small. And the remedy for the crisis is that every voice must be raised loudly and urgently to rescue all the little unborn who's. With the kangaroo's death decree hanging over Whoville, Horton implores the mayor to call a big meeting, get everyone out, make every who holler, make every who shout. Show the video. So he's going to quote from this book. How many of you guys have seen this movie or read the book? Yeah. Suspect the scared little mayor quick called a big meeting in Whoville Town Square. His people cried loudly. They cried out in fear. We are here. We are here. We are here. We are here. And they've been crying that for 35 years. How long is it going to take the church to be the witness to a nation? Horton called back, I can hear you just fine, but the kangaroo's ears aren't strong quite as mine. They don't hear a thing. Are you sure all your boys are doing their best? Are they all making noise? Are you sure every who down in Whoville is working? Quick, look through your town. Is there anyone shirking? Through the town rushed the mayor from the east to the west, but everyone seemed to be doing his best. Everyone seemed to be yapping or yipping. Everyone seemed to be beeping or bipping, but it wasn't enough. All this ruckus and roar. He had to find someone to help him make more. He raced through each building. He searched floor to floor. And just as he felt he was getting nowhere and almost about to give up in despair, he suddenly burst through that door and that mayor discovered one shirker quite hidden away in the Fairfax Apartments, apartment 12J, 12 the number of government, J for justice. Fairfax, it's right next to DC. It's my house a prayer I don't know but what if God inspired Dr. Seuss in 1954 to write this book knowing that the day would come when a 15 year old girl would dream a dream and the book would come out of the archives of history in just the right time it wasn't making you just standing bouncing a yo-yo not making a sound not a, a yip not a chirp and the mayor rushed inside and he grabbed the young twerp I love Dr. Seuss. <laughs> he climbed with the lad up the Eiffelberg Tower. This cried the mayor is your town's darkest hour. The time for all who's who have blood that is red to come to the aid of their country, he said. He's now moving from Whoville into prophecy. It's time to come to the aid of the country and everyone who has blood that is red. There's only one people who have blood that is red. It's the church carrying the blood of Jesus Christ. Mercy, forgive us. Mercy, give us a great awakening. Mercy, it is the year of blood intercession. Thus as he climbed, we've got to make noises in greater amounts. So open your mouth, lad, for every voice counts. And you're held accountable for what you hear today. And you'll be held accountable tomorrow. Thus he spoke as he climbed when they got to the top. The lad cleared his throat and he shouted out, Yop, Y-O-P-P, -P, young ones prophesying and praying. Thank you very much. 
Finally, at last, from that speck on that clover, their voices were heard. They rang out clear and clean, and the elephant smiled. Do you see what I mean? They proved they are persons no matter how small, and the whole world was saved by the smallest of all. A deliverer is coming. A deliverer came in the days of Moses. A deliverer came in the days of Jesus. There is a deliverer coming, and Satan knows it. I tell you, how true, yes, how true, said the big kangaroo. And from now on, you know what I'm planning to do? From now on, I'm going to protect 